Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Journalism. I'm Jenna Spinelli, an instructor in the Donald P. Belisario College of Communications at Penn State. I'm delighted to be talking today with Nikki Usher, Associate Professor at the University of Illinois College of Media and author of News for the Rich, White, and Blue, How Place and Power Distort American Journalism, released in July 2021 by Columbia University Press. Nikki, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So you have um, been doing field work in, in newsrooms for the past 15 years or so, as, as I understand it. And you um, describe this book as the sum total of everything you've researched thus far. Um, that's, that's a lot to, to mm-hmm. unpack. Um, so let's, let's maybe start with this. How did you kind of arrive at this notion of place that is so central to your argument? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that I started thinking a lot about place just in a much more basic sense, because in 2013, I saw that these sort of wonderful news organizations that kind of are, you know, the Philadelphia Inquirer, the LA Times, the Miami Herald, like these really important news organizations were really struggling. And there was a really symbolic way that they were struggling and that they were moving from their headquarters. And for somebody, I was a cub reporter, um, a failed cub reporter at the Philadelphia Inquirer. And all I had wanted to do was like come back from the suburbs to go work in the big house, right? And never made it, um, <laughs> which tells you something. But it, and part of, and I think that like that was a real signifier to me that, wow, like the might of these news organizations, I spent so much time thinking about what what could drive news organizations forward and solve their problems. But this was so symbolic, right? And so that was step one. And step two was 2016. And I think like so many other academics, like so many other journalists, like so many pe- other people in the United States, it became so much more clear to me that this was an issue far beyond journalism, that really what was playing out in the United States was this massive fissure around geographic inequality, like places that have stuff and don't have stuff. Um, and how that sort of fed into political polarization and just that the place is something we take with us. So based on your race and your gender, right, this old school feminist like standpoint theory transcends just like, you know, when you walk into a room, but actually is implicated in geography and also opportunity. And so I think that's kind of a sort of a journey for me. Um, and kind of the last thought on that is during this time of writing the book, I moved from Washington, D.C. to central Illinois. And that, I think, also brought into full relief kind of that national local media attention and, mm-hmm. and also the political sort of dynamics. Yeah, just, to, yeah. you know, moving from kind of like the, the height of, of national media to someplace that was mm-hmm. new to you and, and you, you know, maybe even as, as a media scholar, did you have any kind of struggle figuring out like what the, the landscape was in your, your new hometown when you, you, when you moved there? So I kind of have a joke that like at my, my personal academic motto is always be field working, <laughs> you know, and, and it doesn't mean that everything is like IRB approved, but it means just 
you know, I constantly talk and think about journalism much to the detriment of my own mental health. Um, But uh, so the first thing I did when I got to town was I excitedly saw that the local newspaper was meeting at the library. And I'm like, yes, I've landed at one of these super cool engaged communities. It's like doing a lot of work. And there was no reason to think otherwise, because it's a university town. Um, You know, we have a really great, a great, um, you know, Illinois public radio. But what I found was actually that for the first time, I found that my local newspaper was one that I thought was not living up to sort of the standards that we might want, right? The romanticization, right? There are all sorts of problems, but my local newspaper was an all white, is an is and remains an all white enterprise and would post mugshots for clickbait and uh, had a columnist who was openly and actively against causes like Black Lives Matter. And as an institution, I'm like, how, you know, I know news organizations are sort of implicitly racist, but this one, this one, like, wow, this is my local newspaper. And it's kind of shocking, right? Um, and, and meanwhile, like our wonderful NPR station was really trying to learn the ropes of trying to compensate for that um, and connecting up to all of these, you know, opportunities between ProPublica and NPR. But it's a learning process to pick up the investigative chops that you would wish would be part of your community. And I think this also reflects a general scaling back, like the Chicago Tribune would have covered my community a lot more significantly than it used to, than it does today. So yeah, I think that it really brought into full relief, like, you know, DC journalists have their real limitations, but it's some of the best journalism we can possibly expect. And then here I am in a community that people are very consciously through journalism, marginalizing others. And it was shocking to me. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, as you were talking, I, I could say the same about the the local media ecosystem here in in my town and in, in, in you know, also a college town in Pennsylvania. And there's probably a whole other story to be written about the the relationship to the university and how kind of the university drives the news rather than vice versa. But but anyway, we can maybe come yeah. back to that some <laughs> other time. Um, so the other thing that sort of gets wrapped up in these these conversations uh, about local news, kind of its its past and its its future, is the the connection to democracy. Mm-hmm. And you kind of lay out some very specific thoughts on that in in your book. Can you um, lay lay that out for us here? What you see is the the connection or the the relationship between local news and democracy. Yeah. So I mean, I think that there is just sort of this well accepted premise that local journalism is an inherent good for democracy. And that it's something that we absolutely need for democratic life to function and flourish. And on a normative basis, like I absolutely 150% buy that. But I think what we're learning just in a grander scale about the United States and its foundational myths is a lot of them are foundational myths, right? Um, freedom and justice for all is very clearly not freedom and justice for all, and it never was. But the myths have been so powerful that they've served as kind of a uniting force, right? That local democracy fields good communities, which fields democratic life. And the reality is, if you look historically, right, the kind of local journalism that we associate with holding politicians to account is really just a small, tiny <laughs> slice of the temporal history of sort of journalism in the United States and all of that wonderful de Tocqueville stuff 
most of most of those news organizations were really just reprinting stuff from elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Like their tradition of, you know, really aggressive local journalism, it belongs to kind of this post Watergate era. Um, and it was really, it really remains specific to some of these big metro and national newspapers and television, I think. Um, so I think that's, that's kind of one thing. And the second thing is like, I, I certainly see, you know, political science has worked very hard to establish these links, um, especially sort of causally, but I kind of, and it's kind of, um, risky to throw shade at that to say the Mm -hmm. least, but at the same time time, a lot of the best of that research was done in a very different media environment Mm. um, with very different assumptions about what democracy looked like and who democracy included. Mm. So I kind of threw some shade at at that. Um, And I think that it's really like, but I, I, I think that there are also probably the last point here is that there are different models for democracy, right? And kind of the one that we imagine um, when we talk about the link between media and democracy is like an informed democracy, a representative democracy. Um, but what we really have, especially the way the news organization, news industry functions now is an elite democracy mm-hmm. where we're getting news about elites for elites, where the sanction comes from scandal. And um, I think as we see the evisceration of local news, um, particularly newspapers, which are important not because they're magical, but because they produce a lot of content. I want to be perfectly clear. Um, I think that that, that balance gets re- worse, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't hold out for the myth, right? Because it's an extraordinarily powerful and important one. Right, right. And yeah, I think the the kind of the, the myth goes something like, you know, people read about what's happening, they're more engaged to show up to vote or to get involved in in, in community groups. And yeah, it just sort of, it sort of feeds each other in this, this virtuous cycle. But, yeah. you know, as, as you point out, that is that is not always it, or perhaps even even rarely the case. Yeah. Um, and I, I think the other point to point out is that like, and I should have mentioned this, is that news organizations are often supportive of the status quo, Mm -hmm. right? And we've seen a lot of this around reporting around police violence Mm -hmm. that, you know, police have so often been the unimpeachable force. In quoting the knowns, news organizations reinforce existing power structures. And so if you're reinforcing existing power structures through your very mode of being, that idea of working to create the best democracy you can is kind of anathema to that if you're never really challenging a power structure, right? So that's kind of another aspect of all of it. Right. So you mentioned the the Philadelphia Inquirer before and the, the the Chicago Tribune. I think those are examples of what you describe in the book as Goldilocks newspapers. Um, can you tell us more about what they are and and why mm-hmm. that why this this group of of newspapers categorically is is important to to study or to focus on? Yeah. So first, as a side note, I think if you ever see an academic make a reference to a children's book, it is probably likely they've got a little person around that's uh, because, <laughs> and, and the reality is actually like these these children's fables have stuck around for a long time because the concepts that they discuss really transcend like time and place, right? Um, and so Goldilocks, right? It's a familiar story where the you know Goldilocks wants the porridge that's just right, not too hot, not too warm. Um, In the case of news organizations, especially big metro newspapers, they're not big enough 
to have giant national scale and not small enough to have the support of local, very hyper-local specific niche or niche communities that would provide a sustainable revenue stream. And the, what I call the perverse logics of digital content really, really mess with these Goldilocks newspapers because the only thing that really counts for their revenue, if we kind of think about it in terms of advertising, are those sort of like local slash sort of regional people who are geographically located in the place where the news organization is located because that's where real businesses are, right? And that's where local advertising is, which kind of is ridiculous given that you can be anywhere in the world for the most part, mm-hmm. except for GDPR, right? And be reading the Miami Herald, right? And so um, sometimes a story that's extraordinarily well reported at one of these sort of Goldilocks newspapers can actually be harmful to their financial outlook. And I give the example of the Miami Herald's um, Cuba, you know, covering the death of Fidel Castro, Um you know, and and how so much attention from all over the world poured in. And yet, right, they couldn't benefit from all of that readership because those readers weren't local. And in fact, the bigger the scale got, the more undifferentiated these news consumers got because they're not, they're drive-by. They're just showing up once and never coming back. They're not going to subscribe. They have no data that can be reused. And so that's kind of how they're particularly squeezed. And then there's one other aspect of this in which there's just like a limited market, right? If I live in Chicago, I'm not going to subscribe to the Miami Herald or the Philadelphia Inquirer. Um, particularly digitally, because it's not like a super satisfying reader experience, right? Unless I've got some real hardcore hometown pride, I'm not living somewhere else and subscribing to my local newspaper. So what they're really depending on is people within like a set number of people, right? There are always a set number of people who would subscribe to a newspaper. And now you've got a set number of people in a different media context that can actually maybe be subscribers. And so they're just really squeezed in the middle. Right. And there doesn't like that size is really problematic um, for them. Yeah. So that's kind of the metaphor. Yeah. 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 Um, And I mean, the other thing that this this brings up and kind of the the sense of place is that um, we we hear a lot about how, you know, people in in cities are are transient and they're, you know, moving, they you know, kind of move around a lot or don't feel a real sense of allegiance to the place they live. You, you talk about this as as placeless guy uh, mm-hmm. in your book. I, too, have met have met placeless guy and have, have argued with placeless guys on the Internet about what community means or doesn't mean. Um, what what does that aspect of it of it mean kind of change? You've been we've been talking about changes in like news organizations, but how does consumer behavior change fit into this equation? Absolutely. I mean, I think that um, there's a certain class of global elites who sort of see themselves beyond living in any one place, right? They're cosmopolitan citizens of the world. And so where they physically are doesn't really matter to their day-to-day experience, right? Because, and um, Manuel Castells, who writes a lot about this tension between what he calls the the space of places and the space of flows, is that like, a Ritz in one locale looks pretty similar to a Ritz hotel in the other. And like, actually everything's been set up to allow for the lawless, you know, wherever you are exchanges of capital, right? Like if you want to trade finances 
and you're you're going to find a place to do that really wherever you are if the world is set up for you. And those folks often lose sight of the fact that there are real communities that all have unique challenges. And I think that that kind of gets lost is that every place has a set of social relationships and power dynamics and issues that may resemble each other, right? But aren't the same. The characters aren't the same. Like the histories aren't the same. They may be similar. And that all sets up a different condition for thinking about the survival of local news, but also like the people willing to pay for it. Um, In the biggest city closest to me is Chicago. There's been a historical marginalization of the South Side and the Black community in Chicago by the Chicago Tribune that goes back decades. Is it any wonder that this community base doesn't have much interest in supporting the Chicago Tribune because of the historic? And we see it every day. You know, they've they've recently been apologizing for some of the way they've covered crime, which I think is is a notable step in the right direction. But some places just have long legacies of mistrust. And so there's that side of it all. But also there's like a certain type of person who's willing to subscribe to news right now. Because, you know, if if you and I look at our local newspapers, they're kind of like these thin sort of like there's not much in there. Like my local newspaper covered the like expansion of the reindeer population at a reindeer farm the other day. And like, that's, that's cool. I'm glad I know that. But um, for, for sort of one of these people, transient people who can move around, right, because that implies a lot of privilege to be able to move, right, they're more likely to subscribe to if they're going to pay for news, they're going to subscribe to a large national outlet. Or if they're going to subscribe to a local outlet, chances are they're like a liberal who believes in like the project of democracy like I do, right? And isn't, hasn't been so polarized by the Republican Party to just want to burn it all down and not, you know, support local media. So you really have kind of a change in the contours of who's willing to pay for news, I think, to some degree, and also like the supply itself, right? Why pay for an inferior good? right? That doesn't do anything. And why pay for a good that's marginalized you for decades, even if it's like a good civic institution, just generally speaking. So, right. Right. I, I want to come back to solutions for, for both of those things you, you were just talking about, both kind of the, the elites and also, you know, marginalized communities. I think we're seeing different, different, different ideas, different approaches there. But but before we get there, um, you, you mentioned kind of the, the partisan aspect of this. And I, I feel like there's mm-hmm. also um, maybe not conflicting information out there about this, but I, I see or, or, you know, have seen studies kind of to indicate that you know, this this distrust of of mainstream media, the kind of fake news complex that that Donald Trump sort of, you know, definitely brought brought to the fore doesn't exist as much at the local level as it does at the the national level. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering if if that bears out from from your research and maybe how that fits within this Goldilocks paradigm of, of these these newspapers that are, are right in the middle between local and, and national media. So you've got like, I think when we're talking about community news, there is kind of a different contour. But um, as I show, so I have a, a chapter that actually looks at exactly what you're talking about in the context of place. So it's one thing to talk about it, talk about distrust in news 
and sort of the decline of local media kind of just as a party, a function of partisan affiliation. But it means something different when you look at it as a function of geography. And so what I find is that, and I break up, there's a really great data set that breaks up the United States into different types of communities. So there are like 15 different types of communities. And, you know, it allows you to kind of, without reducing too many similarities, right, you have, you know, um, excerpts and LDS enclaves and like the African-American South. And so it allows you kind of to group some trends together. And what we find is that like local news is declining pretty much everywhere. And there are some places that have simply just been historical news deserts, right? The African-American South, Native American lands, there's never been much of a market and never been much attention by corporate America to really try to sustain vital news in these areas. So then when you start to map on partisanship into this, the weird thing that we find that speaks to what you're saying is actually Republican areas that are heavily Republican relative to the industry are better provisioned for news and information at the local level, which is a really fascinating finding. Um, because what it suggests is perhaps like we don't have indicators of media, media trust at a very local level. Um, Pew did some of that at like a market level, but Mm -hmm. it would be awesome to know, you know, what local, local versus national media trust isn't always asked about. Um, but I think that that finding that Republican areas are over provision for local news relative to the industry is a powerful one because it speaks back to what you said, but it also speaks back to this idea that like, you know, having the quote right information doesn't lead to the quote right decisions that people quote will like not vote in their own interests, you know, because the Republican Party doesn't stand for people's interests. And like there's this really toxic, damaging, um, patronizing rhetoric um, of, you know, that if only people had the right information, they'd make better choices. And I don't know. I don't know how I'm still trying to square my frustration with that rhetoric, with the very real reality that the contemporary Republican Party is dominated by some extraordinary ugliness and racism. But if we look at it just empirically, right, Republican areas at the local level, when we look at news employment, are better provisioned relative to big cities, right? These big liberal cities. And yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. Can you just just clarify what you mean by better provisioned? Yeah. So what we did is we looked at trends in newspaper employment from 2007 and uh, 20 to 2018. And I want to give a shout out to um, Sanghoon Kim, who is uh, the PhD candidate who worked with me on this. Um, but what we found in looking at kind of trends in you can get county level data for like how many people are employed in any industry through the Bureau of Labor Statistics. It's really neat. Um, And so we looked at the category of newspaper employment and we kind of compared it, right? There's this big conversation about this oversaturation of journalists in these, in large cities relative to the rest of the population, you know, uh, and relative to the news industry as a whole. So like this emptying out of the heartland journalist, right? Um, And that's kind of what comes back to the fact that most places are, are losing news employment, newspaper employment overall. But when you look at this within industry comparison of the relative like population of journalists in big blue cities to journalists in sort of these more Republican areas, you actually do see that 
relative to the number of journalists as a whole that exists as a labor force, right? In the counties that are Republican, we find that they are more likely to have more journalists relative to the industry, which is kind of contrary to our expectations, I think. Um, and I think the opposite actually happens in terms of the provision of nonprofit dollars, which is another real issue. So we can maybe talk about like mm. the kind of implicit rural urban dynamics and partisanship that flows into kind of funding news through non-commercial mechanisms. But hopefully that kind of uh, explains it a little bit better. Yeah. And, you know, the on that, I think one thing that, you know, big media organizations, the, the, the New York Times, Washington Post, perhaps others realized after the 2016 election was kind of the danger of, of what you describe as Trump safari mm -hmm. journalism. Um, and so they started hiring reporters who would be based in various cities um, throughout the country, but still, you know, writing for the Times or the or the Post. And so, what what is kind of the the what what are the implications of that? I suppose about you know someone being based in a community but not writing for an outlet that is explicitly rooted in that same community. You know, I think that to some degree, right? If you're hiring from a local news organization that shed one of their best journalists you're going to get ground up, straight up, fantastic, authentic coverage of a local community. Um, I think that happens less than we might think, unfortunately. Um, and there's always been a real issue of national news organizations kind of plucking headlines from more regional news organizations. And the New York Times, for better or worse, is kind of famous for not linking back ever, right, um, to some of these local news sources. Um, but I actually found those promises to be a little bit hollow. Like you did, you have seen more postings like Jab will be outside New York or DC or LA or San Francisco. Like we'll consider that, you know, especially post COVID, like remote work is more welcome. But when you then go and read the kind of coverage that's being produced by these folks, like, and I have this example um, in the book that I really think brings it home where Sydney Ember went to live in Iowa in the lead up to um, the, the 2020 kind of primary. And she begins her, her reader and, and, you know, she's a great reporter. I don't want to discredit her from being like a talented person. Right. But she begins her kind of reader reflection as I was in a tree and, you know, talks about going bow hunting with an Iowa state auditor. I've been to Des Moines. I've done a lot of research in Des Moines. I've been to Des Moines Pride. You know, Des Moines, a, like, you know, I've considered doing RAGBRAI, which is this awesome race across, mm -hmm. across the state of Iowa. Like, not everybody is a bow hunter in the state of Iowa. And I think that, like, something gets lost in that translation. And then when you see news organizations like even the Huffington Post promising to reach out to other places in the country, they're just going to kind of regional centers. So like, we're going to go visit Phoenix. That's a big step for us. You know, we're going to go visit like a mid-sized Midwestern city like St. Louis, like, whoa, you know. Um, so I think that's really kind of a real problem. Um I think one of the things that's really interesting, I think Wesley Lowry, who who blurb the book, really showed the importance of thinking about community more as place in the place you bring with you. In his coverage of Ferguson, I don't really mention this in the book, but he was one of the few black journalists out there. 
and his coverage because he was part of a community and because he could experience things other journalists couldn't, even though he was working for a major national outlet, the kind of coverage he was producing was bar none superior to the rest. And I think that it's important not to just think about it as like just one narrowly sort of geographic place, but also sort of place as power and identity and belonging to different kinds of community groups um, and different kinds of identities, mm-hmm. right? Right. And that kind of leads to, I think, some of the solutions that are being proposed for, you know, figuring out how to address some of these issues within local news. Um, You know, I think everybody from Google to Facebook to Substack has some version of its own Mm -hmm. local news incubator program. I was just reading an article in Neiman Lab this morning about Axios Local, which is which is interesting. Mm -hmm. They claim to have you know, 100,000 subscribers in, in Charlotte and Denver and are, are, are expanding mm-hmm. to several other cities. I think some of them may be in this Goldilocks model. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you you mentioned briefly uh, organizations like City Bureau in, in Chicago and others that are doing more uh, engagement or, or community-focused journalism. But I, I feel like I- implicit in, in all of this is this, I, this, this notion that the kind of the one-size-fits-all newspaper mm-hmm. for everybody is no longer a thing to the extent that it ever even really was before. Um, But just really sort of saying that part out loud. I'm wondering what, what you, you make of that or, you know, how you, how you perceive some of these, these trends that, that we're seeing as far as like efforts to reimagine what local news looks like. So on one hand, the problem is one size fits all, right? Like the decimation of local advertising and the changes in supply and quality of that supply and the degradation of the local sort of original reporting environment. Like that's, that change, like the, the problems, right, are similar across the board, but the places in which they're occurring are different, right? And the ability of different communities to respond are different. Um, To your point about like the Axios and the ProPublicas and like sort of these expansions of these large, well-funded for-profit and nonprofit enterprises, I would guess that like if you were to ask most subscribers of the Charlotte Observer if they had heard of Axios, they would kind of like be curious like what you were talking about, right? It's a particular subset of a particular subset of people, right? Not it's it's hard for people like us to know that and to remember that like these like Politico and Axios mean mm-hmm. nothing to like mm-hmm. my mom, right? Or my right. dad, right? And maybe, and, and, you know, they still religiously subscribe to their local paper out of a sense of duty and seeing their mm-hmm. friends, grandkids in the paper. Mm-hmm. That's it, right? Um, but the one size fits all thing, and I compare Boston and, and Dallas because I think they're really interesting. Like Boston is kind of one of the cases that rises above as maybe having a chance. And it has a unique set of properties, like same problems, facing the same problems, but it's there it's run by John Henry, right? It's owned by John Henry, who is like a multi-billionaire across you know, two continents, like owning like the Liverpool soccer team in the Red Sox and somehow also the Boston Globe. So there's like a real, you know, sort of freedom in, in that regard. But also like Boston's full of like super educated people who are super liberal, not all of them, certainly, but enough um, that are committed to the idea of local news and can afford to pay the outrageous subscription prices of the Boston Globe's digital, right, digital 
outlet. Um, and Boston's actually always, the Boston Globe has always had a free and paid version, unlike many news organizations, right? So you're kind of like the groundwork from which Boston is coming from to be sort of the first local news organization to be in the black slightly, though I doubt it is now in COVID, is a different set of conditions than a place like Dallas, which on the surface seems pretty similar. Like it's all fairly wealthy place. Um, you know, it's newspaper has long been well respected as a booster, right? To some degree, mm-hmm. the Dallas Morning News came to the rescue of Dallas and the aftermath of the JFK assassination has been a supporter of like Dallas boosterism. And, you know, the Dallas Cowboys coverage is certainly none to beat. And yet they're and they're they're also owned by a like the Class A shares are owned by a family as well, like the Times, but they've been managing, they haven't made any inroads in terms of their digital subscription model, right? So like, why is that, right? Um, Dallas is also a blue city with blue purple pockets around it. We tend to kind of batch Texas into one thing, but it's not. So, you know, it's a puzzle to crack. Um, and I think that that speaks to the fact that every place is going to have a solution that is authentic to its community if it's really going to work. Mm-hmm. And you you mentioned too about some of what, like another thing that some of these Goldilocks organizations are trying is sort of more niche um, focused content. Like you, I think mentioned the example of the, the Tribune's theater coverage mm-hmm. in, in Chicago. Now that obviously existed, has existed for, for a long, long time, but I think that's maybe something that if, if Dallas, for example, could find what is its differentiator in in the market. Might that perhaps be be a path forward to to figuring out what is going to be sustainable for them? I mean, maybe I don't know. I mean, like, what is unique to Dallas that the Dallas Morning News mm-hmm. can do that no other place can? Unfortunately, like, I would probably say the Cowboys, right? Mm-hmm. And, sports and the nationalization and localization and poaching and swapping of like columnists and like that's a whole other Mm -hmm. subset of this conversation so I do think it's like what is really going to get the people who will pay to pay um, knowing that there's only a limited amount of people that will do that and what that ends up happening is it ends up sort of folding back in and meaning that the coverage gets targeted to a certain set of people right and and I think that it's more a, more intentional in some places than others, but I actually had in, in a public forum, a news executive told a large group of people that, you know, we don't start this way, but it ends up being that we write for white people. Mm. And it's like, how do you consciously know this, Right. And sometimes it's obliquely referenced like, oh, we're writing for the suburban people in Plano, but it, that's that's a very white place, right? So it 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 sometimes it's it always it what hurts me the most is all of these self-inflicted wounds that the news industry mm-hmm. like that are within newspapers control and within the news industry as a whole's control to fix. It's so easy to place the blame elsewhere. Like It's the digital advertising industry. It's Mm -hmm. the Facebooks. It's the Googles. But newspapers in these Goldilocks cities have been monopolies for decades. Mm -hmm. You know, and, you know, in the post and and they've also been part of these huge corporate chains that have hollowed them out. Like, come on now, like Mm -hmm. take some responsibility for, for the decimation of your own industry. And I think that until news organizations can really start 
to see what's in their own power to fix. And I think diversity, right, and representation is very much in their power to change the conversation. Um, it's very much in the power of news organizations to talk about whether they ought to have an explicit social justice orientation, given that the asymmetric polarization in this country suggests that the only people who are going to be these loyal news subscribers are likely to be liberal or sort of older, moderate conservatives who are like my parents, right? Um, so, yeah, I, I kind of talked around that, but hopefully that gets at your yeah. question more generally. Yeah, and that, that brings up um, two proposals that you kind of get to at the end of the book about sort of a, a, a way forward from some of this. There is no one-size-fits-all solution, as, as you mm-hmm. said, but you, on that point of, of representation, um, you have an interesting idea about work-study programs mm-hmm. and how that, that might eventually lead to to increased diversity within newsrooms. Can, can you uh, tell us more about that? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, the news industry has tried to solve its problems from within, but if you really want to make changes, and I'm learning this from my work at the Open Markets Institute Center for Journalism and Liberty, um, which is a night-funded group, and it's looking like, what are the policy changes we can make? What actionable legislation can we make that will make a difference? And so, you know, a lot of um, diversity, equity, and inclusion people who really work in this dislike focusing on pipelines, and I really understand why. But work study, the way it works is if you can't pay for school and you're getting federal financial aid, you end up having a job um, that helps you in some cases pay back your tuition in other cases, make enough money to like kind of just cover expenses. And a lot of those jobs are at the university because of the way these things are set up. So like, you know, you swipe gym cards, like Yo-Yo Ma is famous for having swiped, um, washed dishes at, 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 at Harvard. Right. Um, and so like, couldn't, couldn't, these work-study positions be put to better use. And we have an example from an elite organiz- elite uh, institution that's managed to do it. And Harvard can't be, it's sort of like the New York Times, it can't be the model for everybody. But what the Harvard Crimson has done is they've actually created kind of their own supplemental work-study so that students who have, face extreme financial distress can still work for the Crimson and not have to do this other job of like, swiping gym cards, right? And so I think that it like what is a tangible reform that everybody can get behind? Hopefully it's like people talk about reforming higher education. Well if we can change the way that students get to experience the job market, right? Especially underprivileged kids who are often left out of un- the unpaid internship circuit. Like there's tremendous opportunities on campus and in surrounding communities for students to do this kind of work study and do it on journal, like use you know, do journalism as work study, and so um, right now, kind of these federal financial aid prescriptions are both very narrow and very wide ranging, and I think that that's a real opportunity to use existing funds to help diversify the news industry. That doesn't require anything from news organizations at all, right? We're just talking about shifting funds, and maybe it's just mm-hmm. the college paper, right? Maybe this isn't about like kids working at, you know, their local news organization and getting paid for it from federal funds, which could be like an explosive thing. Maybe it's just like, okay, you can work for your your college newspaper and get your work study obligations. And then you don't have to also work as a waitress, you know? Right. Right. 
You know, that's, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, it sounds, you know, like one of those things that, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's a great idea. I think people can kind of get behind it, but actually implementing it, there's like, I was thinking about all the like layers of bureaucracy that are involved in actually making something like that, that happen. But, um, you know, speaking of, of, of funding, we, uh, you, you mentioned before kind of the role of, of philanthropy. Um, there's, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of one of the causes du jour for, for philanthropy is figuring out local news. I think you, you touched on before an, an urban rural divide. Mm-hmm. And you also mentioned in the book, kind of a, a pack mentality that, that occurs, um, with some of these, these funding organization. So, you know, where, where does, does philanthropy fit into this picture? So I think um, news philanthropy shouldn't, you know, be scoffed at. It's really important. And it's great that people are finding that journalism, just like the arts and the environment is something worth report is worth supporting with these big foundation dollars. Um, But I also think that there's like, if you look at, there are like always these darlings, right? And they're ones you and I know, Voice of San Diego, the Texas Tribune, like, um, you know, and, and they're names that keep coming up over time. And it's because news organizations, or sorry, the found, the fund, the found funders tend to, once there's like one proof of concept, like once one of them has donated or, or supported an organization, the rest follow because it's kind of been vetted, right? So so these philanthropists, like one, places that are getting philanthropy tend to attract more of it, right? Because there's kind of like a clustering effect of that. Um, but two, like what the, the flow of dollars shows is that unfortunately philanthropists have pet causes, Right. Um, and, and pet types of places they like to fund or think need help supporting journalism. And so when we looked at the distribution of investigative journalism funds, right, and we compared that to kind of how many journalists there were per capita at kind of the state level, we tried to just kind of track these flows of money. Like, was philanthropy for investigative journalism actually going to places that didn't have much of it, which would seem to make sense, right? Like you want to support places that don't have a lot of investigative journalism. We found that there really wasn't a correlation between places that didn't have a lot of investigative journalism and then where the funding was actually going. And then we also saw um, this sort of city-city situation where if you looked at the different types of communities that philanthropy, news philanthropy was being targeted at. And again, this is in the case of investigative journalism, which is a fairly like substantial pot, right? Um, Big city philanthropies gave to big city outlets. And I have a case study of 100 Days in Appalachia, which is run out of West Virginia University. And if you don't look like the traditional mold of a, a place either a a type of place that philanthropists are used to funding, or you don't fit their preconceived models of like what your problems are supposed to be. It can be a real upward challenge for some of these sort of non-city, non-coastal places to attract philanthropy. And it's a conversation within philanthropy, but it's one that needs to happen at a much, a much louder level. Mm -hmm. And uh, as we start to to kind of um, wrap up here, there there is a a lot to to be concerned about as as we've discussed here, as as you as you certainly outline in the the book. But you end with this concept of news resilience. Um, wondering if you could define that for us and 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 how you 
think about that as we kind of figure out what mm-hmm. some some next steps might be? So I think that the, what I was thinking about is like if we had to make a scale of like the kinds of characteristics that communities have that make them more or less vulnerable to the effects of what happens when they lose a local media institution dedicated to covering them, then we can have a better sense of kind of how to support each place, right? And so what are the factors that insulate some communities and make them good places to support innovation and local news? And this might be everything from, you know, how many local libraries there are to, um, you know, what the underlying, you know, maybe there's a university there. Um, And if we can identify places that have low news resilience, and as I pointed out, there are these historical news deserts. If we have a really good sense of the categories of things that make places able to support and sustain um, markets, right, like for independent media, um, I think that we can start to target our philanthropy and our commercial initiatives a little bit more wisely. Um, and with a little bit more of a sense of like, what are the factors that it takes for news to survive? News doesn't have to be journalism, right? Information doesn't have to be journalism. What kinds of community institutions are already out there and what kinds of places really need our help, right? And really need the support because they're so disadvantaged that they don't have any of it, right? And how can we give those communities access to basic news and information needs like, you know, whether their school is going to start on time or where COVID testing sites are. And there are a lot of communities in this country that don't have, and even just neighborhoods in big cities that don't have that very basic orienting knowledge. And a news organization doesn't have to be the one to provide it, right? Um, So like a public health department can post COVID sites right? COVID vaccination sites. So that's kind of where I wrap up. Um, Like, how can we think about the role that news organizations play in community life? And what kinds of places are doing those sorts of things at the community level, so that you don't have to be duplicative? I mean, journalists often sort of approach their work with the idea that they're these public servants, who, you know, are bringing a good that nobody else can provide. And in some cases, yeah, that's true. But in a lot of cases, like the basic information, I think we can get from elsewhere. Right. And are you are you seeing any any examples of, of places where this this mindset you, you've been articulating has started to to take hold at all? Yeah, I mean, I think that like Chicago is one of the most interesting hotbeds for media innovation. Um, and I think that you see that. Um, with the Chicago City Bureau, where they actually have pay ordinary people to take notes at public meetings and then can kind of, you know, if those people are already going to be there, if we can train them a little bit about how to take good notes, maybe those can, you know, if they spot a story, then that can become a story. So like distributing the act of journalism. Um, I, I think a lot of people point to libraries, but libraries are very political. And I have a really good example of that in the book where like, this community in Florida refuses to buy a digital subscription to the New York Times. And it's this huge fight that attracts national attention. But libraries, not every community wants to support a library. So I'm really concerned about, you know, focusing too much on that. But I think, um, you know, there are places 
where people are working hard, like in Philadelphia, I think, and unfortunately, a lot of these are city based Mm -hmm. to do really hyper local sort of authentic community coverage. But at the same time, that's like enclave coverage, right? It doesn't Mm -hmm. challenge power. It it serves a small and important niche, but it doesn't necessarily connect back directly to the large sort of power structures in that municipality or state or at the national level. And we've got to figure out a way to amplify these experiments um, and these really neat innovations to make them, to, to take the, the, the sort of power that they're challenging and make sure it gets heard, you know? Right, right. Yeah. So still clearly lots of, of interesting questions to to be answered here. This the story is is far from over. What's kind of up next on your your research agenda? Are there other pieces of, of this puzzle that that you're you're currently exploring or, or would like to do so moving forward? Yeah. So um, here at the University of Illinois, we're trying to think about the state of Illinois as um, an as a site of research because we care about the future of Illinois communities and all too often downstate Illinois. So the non-Chicago part of Illinois um, gets kind of ignored, especially in these conversations around new sustainability and funding. And, you know, at the same time, these are places that are really under-resourced in many, many, many ways where there's a lot of poverty Um, and like the small town death, like that's definitely happening here. Um, At the same time, right, platforms provide tremendous opportunities to, like, connect people, but they're also largely corporate. So we have this new team called PPLN, People in Illinois, so Platforms, Politics, and Local News in the state of Illinois. Um, And we're going to look at what happens when platforms become the front page, homepage, and bulletin board for civic life at the local level and what that means for disinformation and partisanship and, you know, just news and orientation. So that's, that's what we're, we're at, what's up next. Great. We'll look forward to, to hearing more about that uh, when it comes out. There's so many other uh, interesting elements of this book that we did not even get to, to touch on. I, I highly encourage folks to, to pick it up and, and explore more of, of your thoughts around local news and, uh, you know, where, where we might go uh, moving forward. And just to, to recap, uh, Nikki's book is called News for the Rich, White, and Blue, How Place and Power Distort American Journalism, published by Columbia University Press. Uh, Nikki, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it.